there's, you know, lots of major brain areas involved in stress, including the amygdala is like the big one um, that are programmed in, in infancy. And so it's a, like I talk about it as like a very unique season for the brain. Um, and it makes sense because the brain is sampling, like what kind of world do I live in? Right. Is this a world where um, there's a lot of threats out there and that I'm going to be at an advantage if I'm always hypervigilant and worrying because maybe there's lots of threats in my world or um, is this a safe world where I can actually not be focused on threats where I can be more focused on cognition, curiosity, relationships. Welcome to Raising Greatness, where we ask the questions every parent wants to know. I'm Ryan Adams, and on today's episode, I talk to Dr. Greer Kirschenbaum, who is a neuroscientist, doula, and infant and family sleep specialist. Dr. Kirschenbaum has studied at some of the most prestigious institutions, including the University of Toronto, Columbia University, Yale, and the New York University Medical School, to name only a few. She is leading the nurture revolution to change the way our society cares for infants and parents and wants families and perinatal practitioners to understand how early caregiving experience can boost mental wellness and diminish depression, anxiety, and addiction in adulthood. Join us as we discuss why ages one through three are the most important years in our lives, the big lie every mother and parent is told, the best way to sleep train your baby, and it's actually not what you think, how your brain physically changes when you become a parent, the most important toy for an infant, and it's free, the three times during our lives when our brain gets wired and can be rewired, why you can't make a happy baby happier, and so much more. Greer, I want to thank you so much for joining us uh, for today's episode. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, let's get right into it. What is the Nurture Revolution? Yes, this is uh, something that I've been working on for the past almost eight years. Um, the tight, the, sort of the con concept of the Nurture Revolution built slowly over this time. Um, my background is in academic neuroscience. And so I spent almost 20 years studying the brain um, and how the environment shapes our mental health as we grow up, especially in infancy, in the first three years of life. And, and I left the lab about, like I said, about seven or eight years ago, really excited to bring this huge amount of information out into the world for parents, because I was, I was thinking, you know, so much information is just sort of rolls off the tongue in academia. We're like, of course, the first three years is vital to lifelong mental health. But then I went out in the world and I saw, you know, nobody knows that. Right. So, so I started sharing information, started sharing kind of tips for parents. Um, I also worked as a birth and postpartum doula and sleep expert and sleep specialist. And over time, this kind of concept of the nurture revolution came out of all this work. And the idea is we can change the future of mental health for the next generation by really investing in these first three years of life um, and giving babies experiences that are going to grow their mental health towards, you know, resilience, um, 
and, and positive mental health, right? We can't say no one's going to struggle, but we can really, really give our babies like a great advantage um, in the first few years. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. Now, I, I'm more curious because, I mean, you studied or were a um, assistant professor at some of the most prestigious institutions like Yale and Columbia and New York University of Medical. Like it's why aren't you towing the line? Why, why aren't you like, you know, keeping up with the fervor and like all of this kind of like um, traditional wisdom when it comes to zero to three? What what were you being taught or what are we all taught and what is the new science actually showing us? Yeah, so. So there's definitely, it's kind of interesting in the sleep research world, there is actually a bias um, to prove that, you know, sleep training, like the Ferber method is effective, um, that it helps parents' mental health, right? There are, there are definitely data on that. And so there is like a huge faction of, of academic sleep researchers who in Australia and some in California specifically, who are still going for this. They're like, oh, parents have a hard time with Ferber. How do we, how do we make it easier for them? Right. So there's this, this whole line of research there. Um, but that I see is also really pressured by the fact that this has been normalized in society. Right. And it's what people are asking for because it's, you know, sort of built into the fabric of our society. And, you know, what I would say is not beneficial, right. For, for babies or parents, mental health. Um, is to have that expect these expectations for sleep training. Then, if you look at the world where I was coming from, um, where we're we're looking at the really important brain systems that develop in early life. Um, so these are the sort of our brain areas that um, regulate stress for our whole lives, right? And so, if we have a regulated stress system. We're way, we're way better off. Our mental health will be way better off, right, for life. If we grow up with a reactive stress system, that can, you know, increase risk for all types of, like, mental health struggles. And so when, you know, we we do things like nurture sleep, right? I'm always, like, pro, the, the pro idea, right? Like, I don't want anyone doing anything out of fear. I want parents to do things out of, like, an empowered place where they know they're doing something really good, right for themselves and their babies and so when we we know when we nurture sleep when we don't sleep train when we respond to our babies day and night because babies don't know there's a difference um they're they're simply having a stress response right regardless of the time of day when we when we um are positively responding to it and helping them regulate we're building those those brain systems that are gonna help them with stress for the rest of their lives right so so yeah, to answer your question, I think um, there certainly is this influence of like towing the line that that is kind of in in academia, but a separate line of research is really showing when we're responsive and nurturing, we're really growing the brain in a positive way. Um, and there is quite a lot of criticism for these lines of research that continue to to put forth those ideas. Well. We certainly appreciate you bringing a different, um, being brave enough to bring a different viewpoint out into the open because it is confusing for for parents. Um, I know for, for for myself with 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 Chase being born, we would talk to doctors and you know they would be very much so against, for example, co sleeping. Then you would talk to the nurses and they're like. 
just co-sleep, whatever feels natural. Like in Europe, they would tell you the completely different, um, you know, set of advice or in Asia, whereas here in North America, it's like put them in a bassinet and just like, you know, keep that distance. Whereas, you know, elsewhere in the world, they're like, that's, you know, don't do that do it the other way. And so it's confusing for parents as to what is the right way. So maybe if we can unpack the actual science that you're seeing with a difference, for example, if you were to, you know, have your child swaddled in a bassinet, wearing a hat, wearing a wearing a pacifier, um, as opposed to maybe co-sleeping and, and just maybe the two sides of it and the pros and cons of both sides. Yeah, for sure. So North America is unique in sort of trying to separate parents and babies. Like some people will say even during pregnancy, these ideas start because people will be like, you know, you can't hold them all the time. You know that like you're going to spoil them. And, you know, all these these ideas have been injected into our culture for the past like, you know, 100 or so years. Why is that? Uh, though? Like, like why? So it started. I mean, I trace it. I think the history is longer than 100 years. And one of my colleagues has a longer history. I can give you guys the link to that. But the, the, the influences in North America started essentially with these four doctors who just made this all up, right? Like we can make up, they just said, you know, it's bad for babies, you know, to be cared for at night, close, basically put them in the crib, close the door and say goodbye until the morning. Right. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things we can guess, right? Like did they need mothers to go back to work right away and not, and fathers, right? And not be caring for their babies at night. Did men want all the attention from their wives for certain amounts of time during the day? And the baby was annoying because they were, you know, around all the sure, time. Yeah. And so, you know, there's lots of questions about that. Like, even I guess you, know, it, you would think the logic would be that you're trying to toughen up your babies, right? Like, like tough love, like, like create that resiliency in them that when they cry, they don't just get whatever they want, that there's a certain amount of like, well, life is a little bit tough. Like, I don't know. It seems a little early to be trying yeah. to instill those life skills into a child. Um, but, you know. There too. That's there too. Yeah, all of it. I mean, there was also a germ ac- epidemic happening in the early 1900s. So they said like, only kiss your baby once a day, right? It was just this very, yeah. Like if you have to give them a kiss, kiss them once on the head and that's it, right? So it's it's this very very like patriarchal like heavy influence um that took away because in those days you know now we have this incredible input from mothers and fathers and same-sex couples and like all different configurations of families taking care of babies which is amazing and that's i want to encourage every parent to be really nurturing in those days it was usually a mother um who was taking care of a baby and, and so, you know, we talk about this influence of scientific parenting, sort of these male doctors coming in and telling mothers, everything you, your intuition is telling you is wrong. Don't go to them when they cry. Um, don't kiss them a lot. And so it's driven this like very dangerous wedge um, in between parents and babies that still continues to this day, right? We still hear of these same warnings and things um, to this day, right? So, 
So it's really tough. It's really tough because, um, you know, some of the stories you hear are just like heartbreaking, like, you know, a baby screaming in a crib and, you know, a parent, usually, you know, the stories I hear are like, these are from like the fifties kind of stories, like people, like, like my parents' generation tell me these stories that like a baby would be screaming and the father would be blocking the stairs and saying, you know, to the mother, like, I will not let you go in there. Right. And the mother's like dying inside because we know parents' brains are transformed to be incredibly sensitive and nurturing. Like I'm going to cry right now thinking of it. Um, (laughs) And the stories are really common, right? It's like, you know, so, so yeah, it's just this like very, very dangerous. And I would say like, you know, trapping kind of position, right? It's like not very unfree, right? Like the, the parents are not able to choose what their body is telling them. So why do you, why do you say um, it's dangerous? So it's dangerous because first of all, the mental health of a baby and the parents, both moms and dads, um, thrive when they are together, right? When they are spending lots of time together, when they are in synchrony, right? We have incredible synchrony between our brains and babies' brains. And when we are in the synchrony, um, we have this incredible like release of hormones, right? In both of our bodies. I call it like an oxytocin cascade, right? So when we have eye contact, touch, um, responding, you know, to positive mood and sort of like crying, um, both parents and babies get flooded with these like beautiful hormones and then their stress systems get transformed, right? The babies grows to be, you know, like we said, reservoir resilient and, and well-regulated. And the parent stress system is also under a new construction in parenthood. And so even if you as a parent weren't nurtured as a baby, when you become a parent, your brain can be molded again in a really, really incredible new way. And um, so your mental health, this is an opportunity for you as a parent, for your mental health to be rebuilt. Um, So when we separate, we're taking away that opportunity from, from all the people involved. So a baby is learning lifelong, like the wiring when it comes to how they're going to respond to stress inputs and and how that's going to affect their body is being wired as an infant. And that same wiring or programming is what we're going to use for our entire adult life. Yeah. Yeah. So the brain areas are your amygdala, which is a brain area that's involved in circuits to detect threats right? Internal threats and external threats. And so um, with nurture, that that alarm, the amygdala's alarm, grows to um, only be set off by, by pertinent threats. Um, and without nurture, with low amounts of nurture, the amygdala alarm can grow to be much louder and to be set off by both pertinent threats and things that might not actually be a threat, right? So that's when we see like hypervigilance, generalized anxiety, you know, lots of worrying and things like that. So, so, so let me just say a quick question here. The baby, even though 
just, I guess, just, just being born and the idea that it's scary, it's cold, um, you're uncomfortable, whatever it might be. And then you cry and you're not being soothed and there's no nurture there. There's no skin to skin content or, or contact, or there's no nurturing by a parent that reinforces that it is threatening, that your environment's threatening. And the more that that happens, the more that the child will just see everything as a potential threat with no resolution. Am I understanding that correct? Yeah, in a way. And I think it's important to also say, because some people have had these experiences and so we don't want to scare people as well, but it, it it's not a deterministic thing, right? It's when we look at these studies, they're like big populations of people, um, genetics have another part that come into all this as well. But like what I would say is it would be increasing risk for, right? Because not, we cannot say like this baby had this experience. We know exactly how their amygdala and their stress system will develop, right? It's just that if a baby has a certain experience, there's an increased risk, um, or an increased benefit, right? That could possibly happen to their brain. But yes, absolutely. So like, there's, you know, lots of major brain areas involved in stress, including the amygdala is like the big one um, that are programmed in, in infancy. And so it's a, like I talk about it as like a very unique season for the brain. Um, and it makes sense because the brain is sampling, like what kind of world do I live in? Right. Is this a world where um, there's a lot of threats out there and that I'm going to be at an advantage if I'm always hypervigilant and worrying because maybe there's lots of threats in my world or um, is this a safe world where I can actually not be focused on threats where I can be more focused on cognition, curiosity, relationships um, and other things like that. Right. Okay. So we painted the picture of the, I guess, less, nurture and then the more nurture side so the nurture revolution as, as you talk about it so now what would that look like then so a child is crying um they're an infant which i believe which i'd like to touch on that that you see infancy lasts from zero to three years old which seems a little bit um older than what traditional um people are saying so what would it look like then to be nurturing your child in a healthy um and long-lasting beneficial way yeah for sure so I think the zero to three uh, is really nice because, you know, we don't want parents to think that they have to be perfect at this at all. Like I will. So you're giving us more time. Very happy to admit that I am like not perfect at all as a parent. Um, so, you know, so it's, it's what happens most of the time in those three years. Right. So we can really try our best. We can grow and develop in those three years. You know, we can make mistakes, we can repair, you know, so it's, it's a big window, right, of development um, in those three years. Um, but yeah, so sorry, I'm sorry, I lost, I lost the so question. What would, what would a healthy nurturing um, way uh, of treating a child and being around a child when in those pivotal zero to three years, what would that look like? For sure. So um, a lot of things. Um, so I talk about the big categories are nurtured presence. So we develop, we can develop as parents, like a, um, a nurtured presence for our babies where we accept all of their emotions. We're not banishing parts of babies. We're not saying, I don't like the parts of you that cry. I like the parts of you that smile, right? We can really change our mindset to um, be accepting of 
everything that our baby is experiencing, right? Because they're a human just like us. Um, I don't think us as adults, we like when other people say that to us, right? Like, I'll be your friend when you're happy, but, you know, things are hard. don't call me, right? Um, so, so, yeah, so part of that is, yeah, for babies as well. I'm treating them just like people, remembering other people and not like objects to be managed, which is kind of like the, the prevalent thing. So a nurturing presence is really important. Nurtured connection is really important. Um, spending time every day connecting with your baby where like you're in a state where you are regulated, like you've taken some breaths, you've, you know, practiced a minute of gratitude, right? Because having a baby is very hard. We can be, our nervous systems can be activated a lot. We're getting, you know, a change of clothes and a diaper and a thing and preparing the next meal and thinking about the next thing, right? It's very, very active. Um, but it's important to have nurtured connection where like you take a break from that doing and just try to be with your baby in the moments where they're engaging you, right? When they have bright, clear eyes and are awake, we want to connect with them and, you know, look into their eyes, you know, go back and forth with positive expressions, talking, laughing, playing, um, that's really important to build, to build their emotional system and their stress systems. Another big topic is nurtured stress, right? And so this is the one that's hard, right? Um, and so, so understanding that they need us 24 hours a day to respond to their stress and then understand that their stress is very important and they don't have the brain parts to, go from a state of high stress to low stress, right? This is one of the biggest myths that's out there for babies, right? Going back to these, you know, doctors that said, you know, it's good for them. You know, they have to like exercise their lungs or they have to learn at this, these very young ages to go from high stress to low stress. Um, they, they really don't even have the brain parts, right? It would be like asking me to speak Spanish right now. I don't have those, that brain circuitry in my brain. I can't speak that. And so asking a baby to go from high stress to low stress alone is, is asking them to do something that impossible. Right. Um, and so, so being there when they're stressed and then so much of that is taking care of ourselves too, because especially if we weren't taking care of like that, and many of us were not because we've all been under these influences of these doctors, um, for so long, um, we need to take care of ourselves in those moments, understand how to regulate our stress understand how to be present with another with a baby who is feeling these big emotions um and then helping them right helping them co-regulate from the state of high stress to low stress and then the last you know big topic i talk about is nurtured sleep right and that's again responding to their stress when they're sleeping but also sleeping close to them in the early years um sleep is different brain the brain waves their sleep architecture is different when they're sleeping in the same room as parents in those early years. So those are like the big four areas that, that I teach about. So focusing on the sleeping side, so sleeping in the same room or co-sleeping, um, is, is it a, is it a spectrum? Like co-sleeping would be in your opinion, more ideal than just sleeping in the same room. And the least ideal would be like put them in the basement with a locked door and just don't respond to them at all. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely the last one. Um, <laughs> every baby is different, and every family is different. Sure. Right. So there's no prescription for anybody, and so 
sleeping close means for me means like sleeping like about an arm's reach away. Right. And so for some families and babies, right. Cause there's for co-sleeping, there's a pretty strict list of um, safety kind of measures that families need to meet and not everyone meets those, um, which is one part. Another part is baby's temperament and parents' temperament and comfort, right? Some babies, I have a couple friends who like co-slept with like all their kids and then they have their last child and that child is like, I don't want to sleep near you. And they're like, what do you mean? I want, I want to sleep with my dad. And the baby's like, put me in, put me in my sidecar. Um, and so, yeah, so there's lots of different options, right? There's lots of different options. I will also say, I've been working with a lot of newborn babies now. Um, and so for, yeah, for people to know, like, you know, especially in the newborn time, babies want to be, many do want to be really, really close, right? And then sometimes the distance can grow. Um, but yeah, the, the places I recommend babies sleep are um, bed sharing, if, it, if that's what works for the family, which means sharing the same bed, uh, set up with very strict safety measures. Um, a sidecar bed, which is a really good compromise for a lot of families, where you essentially, again, following safe, very strict safety measures, attach a crib to the side of an adult bed. And so baby's on a separate surface, yet is still very close. Um, you can still put your arm on them if, if they need that for soothing. Um, if a parent is breastfeeding or feeding from their body, they can do that really easily and just roll away. Um, and then and the third option would be like a crib or bassinet, like r- right next to the parent's bed. Right? So because then the baby, the, the idea is that with the close sleep, the baby is in their sleep receiving the safety signals of the parent Breath, their breathing, their heartbeat, um, yeah, their scent, their their presence, right, and and brainwaves synchronize and sleep too. Okay, so let's talk about that for a second. Brainwaves synchronizing. I'm a huge fan of binaural beats. I I, I listen to. Them. I find them fantastic to just calm yeah. the mood and. So what's the science showing that? Because it's a little bit Boudouin still. I don't know if it's it's mainstream. What's science showing then with you know parents syncing their brainwaves with a baby and just that entire realm of uh, science. Yeah, it's still really young, that science, but it's really cool. Most of it's been done by James McKenna, um, a scientist, and, and, and it's been limited to breastfeeding mothers, his studies, right? And so a lot of the studies are limited to that. I would also say, like, whoever the primary caregiver is, can you know now we're seeing a lot of the newer studies coming out the primary caregiver usually will have the most synchronization with a baby and that includes um biological or adoptive dads um as well um but this specifically the brainwave synchrony in sleep is is only been studied in that way and so they find that um babies have different sleep patterns when they sleep close to their mother. Um, Both newborn babies have different brainwaves where they actually have more quiet sleep as newborns when they're sleeping close. Um, And we want that for like restorative sleep. And then once they get a bit older, they have a different ratio of REM and non-REM sleep when they're sleeping close to their mother compared to when they're in a different room. Um, And also that that is also interpreted to be more 
sort of more restorative and more healthy sleep when they're sleeping close. Um, the other way it's synchronized um, is in benefit for the for the parent to respond um, where when the baby goes into a lighter sleep, the parent also goes into a lighter sleep. And so that's an opportunity then that if the baby is waking up for feeding or needing comfort or soothing, the parent isn't in like a super deep sleep because that's uncomfortable to be woken up from a super deep sleep. But the parent's brain would have gone into a lighter cycle as well so that they are more easily to wake up and more easily to go, then go back to sleep. So is it fair to say that when it comes to sinking, that the parent is sinking to the infant's brainwaves as opposed to vice versa? That's a good question. I don't know if there is so much direction. I need studies looking at directionality. It's more like monitoring the, them together. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's like, <clears throat> I think it's like around 60 or 70% of the time where the baby wakes up then the parent will wake up within a few seconds. Sure. And then if the parent wakes up first, it's also like 60 or 70% of the time, then the baby will wake up within a few seconds as well. So I'm not sure. I don't know if the directionality is, is known. Yeah. Inconclusive okay. right now, but either way, there's definitely a, a connection. That seems to be a, do babies uh, dream? Do they go into REM yeah. sleep? Yeah. Yeah. What they are do. they dreaming of? Everyone says milk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I would say too. Yeah. <laughs> With adults, we have to ask. I guess you could ask like an older baby, right? You could ask like a verbal baby who's like three years old or younger. Sure. They, yeah, but I'm not sure. I don't, just just, just basically Candyland, but filled with milk and milk. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So sleep's really important for learning, right? So they learn so much. And so it, REM sleep is very important. For them to consolidate learning right so, so everything they were exposed to exposure therapy throughout the day everything they were interacting with everything they were seeing when they fall asleep that's when they're basically coding it into their brain for the long term exactly exactly yeah and so when babies sleep separately in their own room they have less REM and more non-REM and that's why it's a concern right for brain building um, have, have they done any studies where they take identical twins and they just completely raise them separately, one with high nurture, one with low nurture? Is there a difference in, in IQ levels, which I believe is more genetically uh, related? But is, yeah. there, is there some like, even if it's anecdotal, is there some evidence yeah, that shows what the difference would be? Is, yeah, there's twin studies of um, twins that have been like separated into different families. There's a documentary from, about like triplets. Um in New York. Oh gosh, I can't remember what it's called. And you can kind of see in the documentary that they were, they were kind of, one was in a high nurture family. One was in like a middle nurture and one was in a really low nurture family. And, and you can see the differences for sure. What were the differences? Uh, I think the young don't, I can't be quoted on this. Cause I saw this a long time ago. The youngest, um, so the, 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 the brother who had the lowest nurturing, grew up with like psychiatric, like serious psychiatric is issues. Um, and the one with the most nurturing parents did the best. Yeah, for sure. There's also the show, oh, the um, British documentary uh, and up, right. Where they follow people like from different socioeconomic groups from like, it's called like seven and up. And then 
nine and up. I'm not sure how many, how many years go in between, but now they're like in their seventies, I think. I heard about uh, that. It was a huge study. Yeah. Like yeah. But yeah, there's that there's a lot of, a lot of studies on people who grow up with low nurture um, that are in the realm of like neglect and abuse so we know like what happens on the very far end of the low nurture spectrum. Um, and then there's also studies, a lot of the, t- the ones that I, you know, draw on where they show the effects of sort of a control group compared to a baby that's like held a lot or touched a lot and responded to a lot. So we can see that nurture itself does something pretty wonderful to these stress systems that we've been talking about. But we don't have that. I would love that study, um, you know, where we have, you know, a huge group like an, with an intervention of, of, you know, sort of maybe the baseline parenting that we have today compared to nurture. Um, we don't have that yet. And I think it's hard for a lot of people to accept. So a lot of people, when they hear this stuff, they're like, well, the babies today are not neglected or abused for the most part. Some people are, unfortunately, but, um, you know, talking about mainstream parenting, I would argue that, that no, it's not, you know, as you know, these, these really, really extreme cases that we've studied, but mainstream parenting is lacking a lot of nurture for babies and is very difficult for babies. So I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here. So at what age then, I mean, we have pervasive cuddle culture right now with helicopter parenting it seems like it's kind of gone from like ferber method which is just like like leave them be they'll be a little independent and they'll figure it out to now where it's like no you can stay at home till you're 38 and it's all good and mommy and daddy will always be here taking care of you At, at what stage do we for lack of a better word need to toughen up our kids where we're like okay nope now a little bit more resilience now you do need to you have the brain capacity and that parts of your brain are developed to be able to have a little bit more grit a little bit more re- resilience a little bit more independence for sure i think it's all so so helicopter parenting or bulldozer parenting is what you're talking about where like bulldozer parenting are when is when people like remove every obstacle Okay, I've never heard that before, but okay, it makes sense. It's like, oh, you can't put those blocks together? I'll do it for you. Um, you know, here's your everything pre-made and, you know, no struggle, right? Um, and helicoptering is, like, always hovering over, um, right, and doing sort of – they're kind of similar. They're but, related, but in a clear distinction, though, so thanks for uh, clarifying that. And and those t- forms of parenting are not, you know, are not this nurtured parenting that, that – I talk about those are all those also can cause anxiety, right? Because um, you're not given the opportunity to feel frustration, to problem solve, you know, to do all this kind of stuff, right? So I think the answer is it should always be done in a developmentally appropriate way, right? Encouraging, you know, independence, but also supporting the emotions right. That are coming along with it. And so I think that's a huge distinction, right. Where it's like, I'm always going to be here for your emotions and to, to, you know, hold space for you and, and empathize and like understand how you're feeling. Um, and also to be encouraging you to like do your best, right. Just to have both high responsivity and high expectations is kind of the realm of what we call authoritative I always mess this up. <laughs> not authoritative. Yeah. Authoritative parenting, right? Not, um, 
What's the other one? Yeah, authoritarian is not what I'm talking about. Authoritarian is low nurture, high expectations. Sure. And like a dictator, basically. Yeah. And authoritative is uh, high nurture and high expectations, right? And so, so structure and discipline without just like the heavy hand, per se. Yeah, always like giving children opportunities to like figure things out, do things on their own, grow, explore, fall down, right? Like do, you know, get hurt, have their feelings hurt, but know that like they don't ever have to be alone with feelings that, you know, are overwhelming, that their parent is always there for them for the, for that kind of stuff, right? And so, yeah, it's a big shift, for, for parents to be emotionally available, right? Not many of us did grow up with that. And so sometimes it does feel scary because you're like, oh, well, they're, they're not going to ever grow up. But I also talk about we shouldn't be teaching any human on earth that when they're scared or sad or angry, that they should go isolate themselves. Humans, we're social species. We're from, you know, we've been around 200,000 years. Like, we have for many much much of that time before like industrial times like have had like community like community ways and family ways of like processing emotions hearing each other's emotions um and it's that's a much healthier and more like innately human thing to do is when we have these big feelings to like have safe people to go to with them right so and just just as a little bit of a tangent, but um, I've traveled quite a bit and watching the difference of cultures and how they interact with a child, like a newborn, it's it's fascinating where if, if you go to Portugal or if you go to South America and you see there's a baby, everybody interacts with that baby. It's passed around the table. It's like everybody, everybody's an aunt and an uncle and a cousin and everybody is giving that concentrated time to that child. Whereas it seems like in North America, it's a lot more, you know, insular where it's like okay you know don't touch my baby or sure but like you know it's, it's just different and it just feels without any evidence it just feels right to have that community around a child to just help them to develop emotional skills and and, and interpersonal skills and communication skills like it just feels right if, if there's no other science behind it it just seems like the the, the you know right way to raise a child like imagine the feeling for parents right? To go somewhere and like the community wants to like interact with their baby and take care of them. Like, does that parent then get to like eat a hot meal and like, yeah. Instead of you going to a restaurant where everybody gives you a dirty look or you're on a plane, you're just like, I can't like, like it's yeah. Yeah. And for the baby's experience too. And treating a baby like a person, like that's different than what we see in North America. Yeah. We'll get there in North America. I, I don't know. We, we lead the world in many, many uh, categories, but uh, I think in child rearing, we, we need to learn a little bit, uh, you know, take a step back and get some of that ancient wisdom in us. Okay, so let's go back to zero to three. So pivotal years, zero to three. So now we understand the importance of um, being present, the nurturing revolution as you talk about it, which is the connection, the presence, the stress, all of these things. What should we be encouraging our child in those first three years? If we could just distill it down to maybe three very key important things that a child between those pivotal ages of zero to three should be doing on a daily basis or we should be doing on a daily basis to really give that child the best chance of success. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of things people think it is, is like going to like baby music class or flashcards or, you know, you know, these kind of cognitive things, right. Which is really reflective of our like very unemotional 
banishing emotion society, right? So if you can do those things and you like doing those things, like baby classes and enrichment and stuff, like, great. Like, that's great. A lot of people find that to be overwhelming. Um, so I think it's really important to know. I write this in, like, every baby card. Um, when I go to a baby shower, is like, your baby's favorite toy is your face and your body. Um, they want to connect with you, you um, every single day you know, as many times a day as that's available, um, to be engaged in a very, very close relationship with you as the parent. Um, they want to be seen and heard and known and accepted for who they are every single day. And we can tell them that starting from day one. Um, that's really key spending that not busy, relax time where like you can show up with your presence and you can really take in that your baby's presence, um, is super important. Um, I mean that I would put that before anything. That was the only thing I cared about with my son. I was like, if I get that in, in the day and then the rest of the day is like trying to somehow do things around the house or like whatever, um, that's a good day. Right. Like, um, Obviously, there's so many cherries on top that you can add, like spending time in nature, um, you know, doing some social things, right? For you, right? More than the baby, right? The baby doesn't need social stuff as much as, you know, he need, the baby needs like the parent relationship, but the baby doesn't need to go like around other babies necessarily. But for you, right? Like you have to feed yourself so you can show up in that present place for your baby too. Um yeah, those are, I would say those are like the bare minimum that is even a lot, right? That even that's a lot. And so if your day is like busy and you like have like music class in the morning and then gym class in the afternoon and you're finding that you're not getting that face-to-face time with your baby and that slow time, um I would say like cut back on one of those things um and get that stuff in first. And then whatever you have time for after, you know, add that stuff in. And if you can't add anything else in, no big deal. That's great. So so what I'm hearing is the most important thing is to be present and have that connection with your child because I I love that. Their favorite toy is your face and your body. And if every day you're you're satisfying that aspect of a connection with your child, then everything else is a cherry on top, including interacting with other babies, music class, et cetera. What age is it uh, sort of? to become important, like, like for parents that maybe are thinking about, um, homeschooling their children, like what age is it important to start socializing the child where it'll start having lasting, maybe negative consequences if it's not done? Yeah. I think that a lot of educators say age four or five is when they start to, uh, really benefit from, from social play. But, um, before that, like I said, it's nice, but it's, um, it's much the the relationship with the parents is more important, right? So some people will, some people will start at daycare or something um, under three, thinking, oh my baby's gonna be really missing out on this, and it's totally fine. My son had babysitters and went to daycare as well because they have, you know, for for me to work. Um, but I did that for that reason, right? I didn't do it because he needed that social input. They don't need that. Like, um, it's fine and it's all good but it's not something that they need until like those older ages yeah 
So we've talked a lot about how a baby's brain is being wired in those early stages of just life. But you you touched upon early in the conversation about how, as parents, our brains are being rewired. Can you talk a little bit more about how that's happening, what that looks like, and and what we can expect as, as new parents? For sure. It's so exciting. It's been, I think mostly, I think I came to the epiphany of it. Like I knew the science, but then seeing my transformation was really, really incredible. Um, it's the relationship can be so healing with your baby. Um, so also like, you know, depending on like what your experience was as a baby. Um, so, so these, the circuitry in infancy is, is sort of solidified after three, right? That's why we say infancy is three years because this stress and emotional circuitry is, is really solidified at three. The next chance we have to remodel it is adolescence. And, and we have a lot of other like um, sort of rewiring in our stress system. The infancy stuff is still there, but other things can be rewired on top of that circuitry. And then the other time we know that we have access to it is when we, we become a parent. And so for a mother or pregnant person, those changes sort of start throughout the pregnancy. Um, and for fathers and um, and other mothers who didn't birth the baby, um, those changes will start to happen within the first, you know, three, four months um, after the baby's born. And it's the baby's presence that does it, right? So when we have the baby, a newborn baby on our chest, as much as possible for both parents, if there are two parents um, and caregivers, that the scent of the baby, again, is going to, like I said, release that oxytocin cascade in your body and you will be able to transform these stress parts of your brain, right? Again, um, not changing what happened in your infancy, but rewiring to, you know, to bring that can bring you closer to, you know, more balance more mental health, all this kind of stuff. Right. And so, so spending a lot of time in these nurturing interactions with your baby can do that. It's also a time, like I coach parents as well. Like it's a lot of time, also a time where like we can learn how to regulate ourselves and we're motivated to, cause we want to show up for our babies in this positive way. So motivation is huge, right. For doing any sort of change. And a baby is like the biggest motivation. Um, and so, so then once you start engaging in these like new behaviors of like, oh, I notice I'm in like a fight or flight state, like I, how, you know, what's going to be my, my coping mechanism to like release the stress and like get myself regulated again, or I see I'm frozen here. How do I unfreeze and like get back to calm? Um, when we practice these a lot in infancy, you know, we have this enhanced neuroplasticity. So like those changes will help your mental health like going forward um, later on. But but they also depend on the nurturing, right? It's like if we don't spend a lot of time holding our babies, if we don't spend a lot of time interacting, if we don't spend a lot of time lowering their stress and don't spend a lot of time close to them in sleep, then we're not giving ourselves that opportunity, right? And then the, op the opposite stuff can happen, right? We can actually, a lot of people will suffer um, issues with mental health. I've noticed it um, personally. A couple of things that you, you mentioned. Number one is is how much more self aware you become as 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 an adult, where you realize, whoa, all the stuff in my own childhood that I've been carrying around as baggage into my adult years. I need I need to really first of all shine a light on that, understand it, recognize it, so I don't just unconsciously 
pass it on to my child. So that's been this, this incredible journey where you're like, okay, you become very intentional with what you're passing down on an energetic level as well as an actual conscious level. But then also the, like, I remember always hearing this from parents. They're like, oh, you'll never understand until you're a parent, like the joy of being a parent. And, you know, when you're not ready, you're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, whatever. But it's true. Like when the little guy locks eyes with you or grabs and doesn't hold, like let go of your, your finger or smiles when he sees you and he just wakes up, you just like, your heart melts. Like you're just like, it. I can completely see how it rewires your stress systems, your happiness thresholds, everything. It, it just, it changes your entire life. So those parents that aren't parents quite yet, just know your entire life is going to change and it's, and it's for the better. So exciting. A lot of people say that's like really surprising that they're like, Oh, I thought having a baby was going to be like so cute. And they're like, but now I'm like confronted with all of my own oh, stuff. Yeah. And I really recommend that parents as early as possible, like if you can access therapy, like, start to see a therapist um, in pregnancy or like early infancy. It's so helpful because um, sometimes you will see like a behavior that you do and you're like, whoa, that was something that scared me growing up. I don't want to repeat that. Um, it's really good to have that resource. Um, yeah. Yeah. What seems to be beautiful is as beneficial on both sides. It's beneficial for the parent as well as obviously the child as well. So it's kind of it's a it's a true win win situation. You talk a little bit about passing down our stress systems to our children. How can we prevent that? And a lot of it is what we're talking about right now. But maybe just what's the science of the way as as we interpret and uh, deal with stress consciously and unconsciously, and how that's being passed down to the child. Yeah, it's really great. Um, you said like we give them messages like on an energetic level, which is really true in that we can't you can't fake calm or regulated. Right. If you know, I, you know, right now, let's pretend I'm like so scared of public speaking right now, um, but I have a smile on my face this whole time right my I still won't be able to trick your brain because I'll be still communicating this fear through like micro expressions if you like slow down the video to like millisecond <laughs> slowness <laughs> you would see like these fear expressions that I would be doing that your visual system can't even process um but your brain knows your brain would know my state right and so it's the same with babies, right? If we are constantly in like a heightened stress state of like fight, flight, freeze, um, like that's the state that they are going to mirror inside their bodies growing up, right? And, and that's like the opposite of that oxytocin cascade that I talked about, right? So that would be more of like a cortisol stress cascade that they would be bathing in more of the time. And so that is, you know, influences how their stress system develops. Um, and so if we understand those stress states in our own bodies and understand how to regulate them, um, there's so many different ways, both like preventative ways and then also in the moment ways. Um, it doesn't mean that we can't get stressed because like we're going to get stressed like lots of times of the day. Um, we're going to be in fight or flight or freeze, but we can have, like you said, more awareness of where we're at, understand our feelings better. And then the other huge one for parents is like understanding our needs, 
Because if I'm having a week where I'm like yelling a lot, getting frustrated a lot, that's a signal to me. Like, okay, you are needing stuff. You are needing something right now. Like you are needing a walk. You're needing time alone. You're needing to go out and have fun. You're needing to like fill up yourself with, you know, some regulating things um, so that you can show up in a different way, you know, for, for your son right now. So um, yeah, it's a very long <laughs> answer, but um, yeah, I think it's about, again, not needing to be perfect. Cause like, and looks fully being okay that we're going to like get into stress states, but the way that we help ourselves and our, and our babies is by learning as a parent, like to notice those and, and, and how to take care of ourselves so that we can spend as not saying a lot, not saying a certain number percentage, but like more time in like regulated calm states so we can connect with our babies the way they need to be connected to. Two questions. Is the research showing that a stressed out um, mother in pregnancy will birth a more likely to be an anxious or stressed out baby? And when a mother is breastfeeding that cortisol, does that get passed through the breast milk? Where if she's in a heightened state while she's breastfeeding, the baby will then get that uh, those stress hormones as well? Yeah. So in pregnancy, stress does influence the beginning of the stress system development of the baby. Cause that does start in the womb. Um, I always share, I had, I was like planning on like the chillest pregnancy. I had an unbelievably stressful pregnancy for like so many different reasons. Um, and so many of us will, and we can't control. Right. Um, at the same time, I knew and was empowered with the information that I could also practice some stress management at the same time, right? And so mindfulness, movement, different things that you can do alongside experiencing stress, processing it, you know, all this stuff is really helpful. Um, again, like no one's going to be living in a bubble. We're all going to stress. So it's like knowing it and also knowing like, you know, I can listen to like a guided meditation once a day and like know that I'm like buffering it as best as I can. Um, and also knowing, let's say you don't do any of that and you have a really stressful pregnancy and it does, you know, influence your baby's brain development and stress system, then you still have three years where that system's still growing, right? So people can have like stressful pregnancies, NICU stays, stressful first few months, postpartum depression, right? So many obstacles can happen for us, um, but we still have lots of time, right, to develop, Um and for milk, I think it's more, I don't, I don't know the specific answer about if cortisol is trans, like, transmitted, but I know at least like the mother's state and father's state would be in terms of like, if I'm in a heightened state, my baby mirrors that state, like physiologically, like if I'm stressed, my heart's beating, my, my pupil size is a certain size, the baby understands all those cues on a physiological level and will mirror them. So, so that yeah, there's stress in the environment, it needs to be highly vigilant. And even if it does not fully understand it, yeah, which makes sense for survival, right? Sure. Mommy and daddy are stressed. There's wolves at the you know mouth of the cave. Yeah, exactly. I also, because this also comes up a lot, like people who have like a really high needs baby who like feels a lot of stress and like intense stress, people will say to the parents, like, you need to relax, chill out. If you're chill, your baby will be chill. There's also temperament is also like a huge factor, right? And so 
let's give parents a break. Like they're trying, everyone's trying their best. Um, you're no parent is like causing their baby to be any certain way. Right. It's what I've learned too, is, is that, uh, there's a great quote, something along the lines of like parenting is the only thing that every single person has an opinion on. Um, and like, we all have an opinion, especially when you're not a parent, you're just like, Oh, I'd be raising my kid totally different. You see that, you know, frazzled parent in Costco or whatever. You're just like, you know, and they're losing it at their child. Just like, Oh, never. But then as soon as you have a kid, you're like, I get it. You know, it was, you know, like there's times where you just like, you're stressed and it's, yeah. uh, it's hard. Um, yeah with a child when there you talk about the fact that you can't make a happy baby happier what do you mean by that this is like my husband's favorite thing like our son would be like you know like playing on a mat there and i'd be like oh maybe he needs another toy or like a thing and then like and then you know then you distract them from like what they're doing and and the you know the work of a baby or whatever right and then sometimes you just it backfires and then they don't like what you do and then they start crying right or like if you're like oh maybe if I just adjust that blanket a little bit more they'll be cozier and then it can like also backfire so yeah my husband would always be like you can't make him happier you can't make him happier. and maybe this speaks to a bit of the helicoptering stuff that we were talking about right so like you know if a baby is like engaged in something you see that they're like exploring their hands or like exploring a toy or figuring out rolling over or crawling like notice like what state they're in right like they're engaged in something um interesting at that time um and you know be curious and observe but you don't always have to like get in there when they're in these like happy states that's kind of the idea with that so, Greer, if, if people want to um, kind of reach out to you or get to know a little bit more about what you offer, I mean, you you offer so much. What's the best way for people to kind of get in touch with you and just learn a little bit more about what you do? Yeah, for sure. So um, I communicate a lot on Instagram. Uh, my name on there is Nurture Neuroscience Parenting. Um, I also have a website, which is NurtureNeuroscience.com. And I'm building a lot of things right now. So I really encourage everyone to sign up for my newsletter on my website. Um, there's a link to it on my Instagram as well. I'm revamping all my workshops and courses and sort of breaking them up into more focused um, areas so that we can get information out to like specifically like parents who are pregnant and, you know, planning need, you know, need a plan to nurture their baby or, you know, whatever, sleep specific things, all these kinds of things we're coming out with. So yeah, sign up for my newsletter and lots of, lots Stay of tuned. Yeah. Great. Really appreciate all the wisdom, everything that you've shared. Um, I know any uh, parent that's listening right now got a lot of good takeaways from this. So really appreciate your time. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ryan.